Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I'm going to ask a basic question. Who is God? Is he a stern judge and lawgiver? Is he distant and removed? There's kind of an endless debate about God within the major branches of the Christian faith. And so does the Spirit proceed from the Father or from the Father and the Son both? How is the Father involved in the work of the Son? And how do we conceive their difference, etc., etc.? And so East and West, Protestant, Lutheran, Calvinist, they're all largely defined by the perceived differences in this basic reality. Now many of the differences occurred in the early church and it pertained to the degree to which Greek philosophy and Greek conceptions of God should be adapted. And of course they were adapted and we then are living in the wake of that reality. But if you think of the cold, Socratic, machine-like, unmoved mover, that's the Aristotelian God, that feels no emotion, there's a word for this, he's apathetic, divine apatheia. God does not feel emotion or sorrow. He experiences no change. Aristotle describes God as only loving himself and thinks only of himself. Think of that God and then think of the God of the Jews. This God of suffering people who suffers with them. This God who rejoices with them. Jeremiah says, I have loved you with an everlasting love and the voice of God. Therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. It's thematic, this love of God. The one who does not love in 1 John does not know God for God is love. Is love an emotion? Well, it's certainly inclusive of the emotions. God is pictured as rejoicing. In Zephaniah 3.17, a victorious warrior, he will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Isaiah pictures As a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. God is rejoicing. He sits, Psalms 2, 4 says, in the heavens and he laughs. Now we recognize that the Old Testament is describing God in human terms. But nonetheless, the world of the Jews and the world of Jesus are lit up with what we would call emotion. And of course, the word itself is problematic. That the emotions, as we call it, it's not what the Greeks were thinking of. It's really not what the Jews were thinking of. Even in the English language, the category of emotions only arises in the 18th and 19th centuries as a classification. And so it's not interchangeable with either the Greek understanding and the Greek we would talk about passions and affections. And it's certainly not interchangeable with the Hebrew world. 
But because of our own church history, we've run all of this together and not distinguished it. In the world of the Greeks, passions and affections were the soul's movements. And of course, movement or change was always seen as something less than reason. Think of Socrates. He's about to take the hemlock. He's been condemned to death. And his wife is there weeping uncontrollably, holding their child. And he just curtly dismisses her, says, go home. And then he has a rational discussion with the men. And it's true not just of Socrates, it's just there in Greek literature that tears are for men mostly absent. Lamentations says, my eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth because of the destruction of the daughter of my people when little ones and infants faint. Think of the rejoicing, the tears, the sorrows, the laments, the love of both the Old and the New Testament. And so there's something deeper even than our word emotion. An ethos, an engagement with the world, an atmosphere of love. As I was reading about the Greek understanding, I actually was thinking a lot of Japan. Because very similar idea that the Greeks picture emotions or agitation it's not really so much experienced as an inner state but it's a reaction in public encounters so Aristotle subsumes emotions in talking about rhetoric that is that the only reason you want to use emotions or manipulate them is as a rhetorical strategy what I'm describing is there's a collision of the Greek and the Hebrew world and we still live with this. It's there doctrinally but even there is a very different ethos or atmosphere that gets taken up in various emphases. You know the Eastern Church and the Western Church and so Ernst Trelch divides the sociological context. He says in Christianity, and he's not saying these are three different groups, it's all part of the Christian church, there's what he calls the church type, the hierarchy. There's the sect type that kind of breaks away from that but is still a part of it. And then there's mysticism. And the mystics, of course, always dwell on the edge of things. They're out in the desert. But it's all within what we call Christianity. But certain conceptions of God cohere with particular types of ecclesiastical organization. Focus on the spirit is unlikely to accompany a strong patriarchal, social, and political context. Given the role of the Holy Spirit, you know, think of our talk last week in Romans, that we have this groaning of the Spirit and prayer of the Spirit, the prayer that it's often pictured individualistically, mystically. There's a feminine role of the Spirit. And so throughout the history of the church, the more settled the institution, the more in Trelch's terms, the church type, the more unmoved, settled, and distant the conception and perceived experience of God. 
And so the focus on the spirit and the experientialism of mysticism, that tended to get segregated out. And it's the theology of the church type that has come down to us. And the adaptation of the Aristotelian concept of God is part of this. It came with an adaptation in Constantinian Christianity to empire, to hierarchy, to institutions meant to endure by dint of their alignment with worldly power. An Italian thinker, Agamben, he describes there's actually two orders of church, each consisting of its own conceptual and experiential reality. You look at a passage like 1 Peter 1.17 and it talks about the sojourning of the church. The sojourner church stands in contrast to the settled church. That it's on the move, it's passing through. The settled church looks like a city, a state, a kingdom, an empire. It's built to last, it's put down roots in the world. The settled church is not geared like the sojourning church is to the parousia, to the second coming of Christ. Christ's uh, disruptive presence. And interestingly, Agamben locates the point of departure from the biblical, what he describes as the biblical church, within the early debates about who God is, about the Trinity. The early church then divides God. They said, well, there's God in himself, God's self-relation, they call the imminent trinity. And then there's the economic trinity, God's relation to creation. And Agamben describes this as accounting for Western politics and economics. Oikonomia, or economy. That there is this economy. He says, from the beginning, theology conceives divine life and the history of humanity as an economy. That is one step removed from who God really is. That theology itself or church life or Christian life is economic. It's not a direct dealing with God in and of himself. I'm just describing that the church came to have a view. You know, I'm not describing any particular church. But it's had disastrous consequences. Many people would say that the 20th century, the most disastrous century on record, is a byproduct of this kind of rational Christianity. And certainly that was the conclusion of theologians in Nazi Germany. They saw the rise of National Socialism, the rise of Hitler, as the failure of the church. Because the church is the one that lauded the rise of Hitler. And they said the church has failed us. And so there began a period of great innovation, you know, by people like Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And they begin to do a kind of theology that, if we're thinking of Trelch's terms, no longer of the church type. You know, my question, what is God like? Who is God? Well, there's a very straightforward answer. We know who God is in Christ. And yet, for long periods of church history, that simple answer that arises was left aside. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is going to be a martyr in Germany, 
lectures on Christology and he says the Logos of God, the Word of God in John, it is not located in the transcendent. The Logos is the incarnate Christ. Think of Christ before Pilate. Pilate says, what is truth? It's the wrong question. It's a very Roman, Greek question. You know, that was always the Greek questioning. Well, God can't experience these things. How is truth? What is truth? The correct question is, who is the truth? Who is it that I confront when I look at Jesus? Of course, what comes with this, who am I? challenging our own self-understanding. He says when a human being confronts Jesus, the human being must either die or kill Jesus. That is, our own self-understanding must be transformed. The Logos, that's a Greek philosophical term. If we picture it in the Aristotelian difference, you know, the apathetic God, it's to simply accommodate divine revelation to the human word. This word will not recreate us. It will not re-beget us. It will not require the death of our logos. This sort of God simply accommodates our instincts about the absolute other. You know, we can't reach God. That's the whole picture in idolatry. That idolatry is really an obstacle. That you can never obtain what is presented in the idol. And so if we do not accept the death of the human logos, human philosophy, we will deploy it in defeat of the divine logos. Now, of course, Christ allows for this in his death. Christ is not a rival to my will or to my word. Philippians says that he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. And this is more than just the incarnation. This is the form of the incarnation. And this humility then is the challenge to my own selfhood. Because we build our own selfhood on the pride that we would take in the human understanding. Maybe one of the sharpest, and I'm taught, these are all Germans. And I think it's a, there's a reason they're Germans. Because they're in a situation in which for all practical purposes... Christianity and the church has failed. And they're having to start from scratch. And so Jürgen Moltmann, who in, in fact becomes a Christian in a Scottish prisoner of war camp. He's a young German soldier that's put in prison. And he says it's one of the best experiences of his life. Because it's there that he meets Jesus. He's still alive, by the way. He's in his 90s now. But he writes his book on the Trinity by recounting, he says that Greek notions of God effectively corrupted the Christian faith. Where Greek philosophy has been deployed in conceiving of God, then we have to exclude difference, diversity, movement, suffering from the divine nature. This gives us a God that is so far from us, he's impassable, you know, without emotion. He's immovable. He's remote, such that an apathetical portrayal of God trumps the passion of Christ, trumps the person and work of Christ. Think of the two words, apathy, apathetic, apatheia, passion of Christ. Those are really our two choices. He concludes that down to the present day, 
Christian theology has failed to develop a consistent Christian concept of God. And instead, it has adopted this metaphysical tradition of Greek philosophy. Now, if you're thinking, well, I've never heard of Greek, any of this Greek stuff. Oh, you have, because that's what's just been absorbed throughout Christendom. That the apathetic axiom, he calls it, that is, God is unmoved, that this has prevailed over the person and work of Christ. We either believe in the apathetic God, or you turn to the passion of Christ. The word passion, emotion, suffering, that prevails and divine apathia is no longer determinative. Who is God for you? Is it the God that we meet in divine apathia, the God of the philosophers, the God in the economic trinity, or is it the God that we meet in Christ? We're going to get rid of two ideas of suffering. The depiction of suffering that entails a rejection of God's being able to suffer and the rejection of suffering that is simply a deficiency. You know, usually we suffer because we're weak. Or He says there is a third form of suffering, active suffering. The voluntary laying oneself open to another and allowing oneself to be intimately affected by them. That is to say the suffering of passionate love. Without passion, God would be incapable of love. When we say the word passion, we could be referring to the passion of Christ. That is the suffering of Christ. But of course, passion is inclusive of desire. And we need to include both things. If God were incapable of suffering in every respect, then he would also be incapable of any form of passion or love. And this is Aristotle. God would at most be capable of loving himself. And of course, you know, what does the unmoved mover think about? Well, he can only think thoughts about himself because he's the only unchanging thing. If he thought about any other thing, those are changing things. He's the great narcissist of the sky. He's incapable of loving something else. But in Christ, we see that God lays himself open to the suffering love for another. By virtue of his love, he remains master of the pain. It's not that God is subject to a pain that just comes upon him. God does not suffer out of deficiency of being like created beings. To this extent, Boltman says, he's apathetic. But he suffers from the love which is the superabundance, the overflowing of his being in love. Insofar as he is having pathos or emotion, God is love. And this is not a cold love. I, I don't know that there is any such thing as cold love. But unfortunately, that's the way we often think of the love of God. But the love of God is passionate love revealed in Christ. He says this is the view that the church has always held. He turns to Origen, who describes the suffering of God in Romans 8.32, creation groans, and God groans, and the Spirit groans. He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. And so in his mercy, God suffers with us. Let me quote Origen here in describing this. He took our sufferings upon himself before he endured the cross. 
Indeed, before he even designed to take up our flesh upon himself, for if he had not felt these sufferings beforehand, he would not have come to partake of our human life. First of all, he suffered, then he descended and became visible to us. What is this passion which he suffered for us? It is the passion of love, Origen says. The Father himself, the God of the universe, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy, he's quoting Psalms 103, does he not also suffer in a certain way? Or know you not that he, when he condescends to men, suffers human suffering? For the, the Lord thy God has taken thy ways upon him as a man doth bear his son. Deuteronomy 1. Origins talk of God's suffering. It means the suffering of love, the compassion of mercy, the compassion of pity. The merciful person takes pity. You know, in taking pity on another, they participate in the suffering of the one he pities. This is the admirable thing about small children. I remember when our daughter first went to school. And so one day she came home upset. She was just crying. And we thought, oh, she must have gotten in trouble. No, she, she hadn't gotten in trouble, but another little boy in the class had gotten in trouble. And she just felt everything that he felt. And that's the suffering that God feels. You know, that's the, this human suffering is one that is made in the image of God. The suffering of the father who in giving up his own son, he suffers the pain of redemption. The father, we cannot remove him from the passion. We can't remove God's desire from the passion of Christ because that is the working out of what God desires. This is origin. We're talking second century. Moltmann even goes to a Jewish understanding. When you pray the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. To acknowledge God's unity, the Jew calls it uniting God. You know, the prayer in Romans that he is groaning with us in our prayers and we cry out, Abba, Father, that we participate in the communion of the Trinity in our own prayer. That's a very Jewish understanding in the Shema. For this unity is in that it becomes. It is a becoming unity. We participate in it. And this becoming is laid on the soul of man. Franz Rosenzweig, who is a, a Jewish theologian, says, Mysticism builds its bridge between the God of our fathers and the remnant of Israel with the help of the doctrine of the Shekinah. The Shekinah is the reflected glory of God. The Shekinah, the descent of God to man and his dwelling among them is thought of as a divorce which takes place in God himself for God to participate in the world. There is a kind of, really a kind of precursor to the incarnation. God himself cuts himself off from himself. He gives himself away to his people. He suffers with their sufferings. He goes with them into the misery of the foreign land. He wanders with their wanderings. God himself, by selling himself to Israel and by suffering her fate with her, makes himself in need of redemption. And so here is a Jewish conception. I think that in Romans 8, the prayer that inserts the one praying within the communion of God. 
The Jewish depiction is a picture of an estrangement or suffering, an alienation that God enters into and the estrangement is overcome. That's the picture that God is uniting all things in himself. God has opened himself to human experience and human suffering, becoming human that humans might participate in the divine. But it is the primacy of God's love. It's not human suffering, you know, that determines the course of God's suffering love. And so the passion of Christ in this theology, that's where I think that the key understanding of Bart and Bonhoeffer and, and Moltmann, and this has become a, a key theological insight. And so we do away with the economic and imminent trinity. The economic trinity is the imminent trinity, and the imminent trinity is the economic trinity. That is not to reduce God to all that he is in the world. Certainly he precedes that. So who is God? What is he like? In Christ we can answer this question. The passion of Christ, it refers to a suffering. You know the name Isaac. Isaac is a type of Christ. It means he laughs. We see Christ weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. We see him weary and tired in the boat at Galilee. We see him thirsty and tired at the well in Samaria. Jesus laments over Israel's rejection. He felt compassion for the lost. And for those who were simply tired and hungry, he fed them. For the sick, he healed them. In anticipation of the cross, Jesus' sorrow became so great that he shed drops of blood. And while on the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That the suffering of Christ is taken up into who God himself is. The passionate love of God is here. He who gave up his own son tells us that we live in a world lit up by the love of God. And love then is the impulse to connect, to intermingle, to weave our existence together with that of other things. It is the foundational principle of God. And of course, once you name that, you said that's the foundational principle of all reality. To save ourselves, to save life on earth, to save a meaningful existence for ourselves, to have a meaningful existence, we learn to love. And being alive is always a practice of love. Because this is who God is. It's not simply an emotion, but it is certainly that. Otherwise, it is not love. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org. Dot org.